Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Good morning, and in the studio today, we have producer, director, and cinematographer, Nick Reed. Welcome, Nick. How are you doing today? Good morning, Liz. It's lovely to join the show. Fantastic. Um, You've got a very impressive uh, body of work. And um, just for our listeners, why don't we find out a little bit about how you got into filmmaking, the very beginning? I got into filmmaking through pure luck, really, at the very beginning. I I thought I wanted to be a a saxophonist in a ska band when coming out of university, but I met someone who was a student at at an institution I had never heard of, the National Film School. And so I went along to help him make a film, and one thing led to another. I spent about three years there, kind of filling every every grade you could possibly uh, fill on on a, on a film set, uh, in both dramas and documentaries, and I sort of gravitated towards the camera department. Um, and then in another piece of in, in complete luck, I was making a a uh, industrial video for MFI carpets, as you do, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was not the, the the zenith of my career. But um, as we were packing up. There was a really shocking plane crash about two miles away from where we were filming. So I called someone I knew at NBC News, and they asked me to go down. And that launched a whole sort of nearly a decade of of working as a frontline news cameraman um, through the 80s and and a lot of war zones and a lot of, um, uh, yeah, primetime frontline news, news coverage. Right. So then that, I guess, did that then feed into your documentary filmmaking just naturally? Uh, it did. Um, I was lucky enough to cover the fall of the Berlin Wall as a news cameraman. And I kind of hung around afterwards and realized that um, there were so many stories emerging. Um, so I moved on to Czechoslovakia. I covered what was then called the, the Velvet Revolution and found a a story that everybody um, who'd resisted communism was very concerned about, that this Czech secret police, the, equi- the equivalent of the KGB, the Stat were going to undermine this amazing, exciting pro-democracy movement led by Václav Havel. So I hung around and, and, and found some really interesting people, so I realized that, that that could be a film I could make as a director. So that was where my directing career kicked off. Again, it was all about luck and perhaps a little bit of opportunism. Have you always found that people's stories have attracted you? Was it like a natural thing within you that obviously these happenstance events pulled out of you? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would describe myself as a um, storyteller first and last, really, as much as a filmmaker. You know, I'm, I'm drawn to uh, telling stories that people haven't heard before, the, the, un, the untold stories. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I'm, and I'm, I suppose I'm drawn to people who haven't had the, the opportunities to tell their story. Um, so quite often I'm drawn to stories that are quite remote, or you know, be they uh, Russian prisons, or um, uh, you know, I've done a lot of work in Africa and and um, in quite difficult uh, re- remote places. So yeah, it's it's always the story that I uh, uh, that engages me first, and then the storyteller, who are the characters and who are the people that I, that I can persuade to to be part of the film. There also seems to be, I think, like a common element of a pressure point or a point in people's lives where it's sort of grace under pressure I guess is it that moment you know looking at the human condition in extreme that attracts you well I think in a, any filmmaker be they a narrative filmmaker or a documentary filmmaker looks for looks for drama and and you can't have drama without conflict so yes I mean I now don't seek to go into the, the, the live fire zone of, of conflict zones. I'm far more interested in what's happening at one step behind it or, or, or one step removed or one step after the conflict has, has passed. And from that, you know, obviously that then becomes a slightly more retrospective past tense storytelling. But I think from that, um, by then, hopefully people are less traumatized and can speak with more clarity. So, yeah, conflict's at the heart of everything, uh, every decent film I've ever seen. (laughs) Yes, very much so. In the 90s, you did a lot of work with British TV channels, such as BBC and Channel 4, and some of these were in the shorter form that is that classic UK sort of panorama-style report. Was that because that was the format available to you at that time, or was that preferable for you? Um. I guess I'd like to think I've, I've evolved a bit as a fil- filmmaker, but yes, the opportunities that presented themselves to me, having grown up as a news cameraman and having been sort of um, schooled, if you like, in in news and current affairs, the opportunities that presented themselves were for a relatively short form. I mean, I don't remember making many films less than 40 minutes. Most were 50, I think, um, depending on whether they were for commercial broadcasters. And yeah, I mean, for the best part of 20 years, I'd make three films a year, um, which uh, at a time when you know, I was in demand and there was a massive sort of hunger uh, on behalf of audiences for those sort of s- stories that were relevant, that were addressing the, the, the concerns of the day. I think as I've evolved, though, I mean, I've slightly moved away from sort of pandering to, to an exclusively news-driven agenda. And I look for slightly more reflective stories, which can be told in in a longer form, um, which allows the stories more time to breathe. You're not um, tied to the typical television grammar of having a, a commentator or a presenter. Um, so, yeah, I very much, um, I guess, found my place in, in in making long form feature docs for the last 12, 13 years. Um, which gives me a creative freedom 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it comes with um, a few penalty clauses as well. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I guess the difference is as well. Back then, I guess you were getting to investigate different stories through the year, whereas now, I guess with a feature, you're probably dealing with one story over the whole year. Yeah, I went from making three films a year for twenty years to now making one one film every three years. Right, is how long it typically takes? Yeah, to make a feature doc. Um, and yeah, I mean that's part of the uh, you know hopefully you evolve as a filmmaker. You know you don't you're not quite so hungry and 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 you know they, they there was a lot of time pressure to deliver those stories within a, a, a schedule, sometimes to the detriment of the film. So is it quite nice now to be able to sit with a story for something like three years and and flush it out and and get to know, figure out what the story is and and how you want to tell it? Yes, I mean it gives you the um, the luxuries, occasionally the burden of time um, mm-hmm. to. I mean, most importantly, I guess to to really get get to know the people in the film, to build up a relationship of trust. Um, and to find the right people to be in the film, to, to cast the film very carefully. Um, and then in the storytelling, to allow uh, a different type of story to evolve. Uh, I mean, in my television history, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd have three months to make a film. But now you can um, allow things to unfold in, 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 in sli- uh, under slightly less pressure. And if that relates to, I don't know, a medical procedure or an, a legal case or whatever, you, you can still go there. It, it's, it's far harder um, when making television uh, with, their, with their deadline strictures to, to undertake stories like that. I did also note that in the sort of mid to late 90s, you did six episodes of EastEnders. Which it seems oh. to, which seems like a bit of a departure <laughs> it, into yeah. narrative. Was was that something that was just dipping your toes in, maybe? Oh, that's I did not expect that. Quick. I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> <laughs> that's, oh, we got you. Buried in the in my in my CV. That's not. Um, I'm not ashamed of it. But it was at a time when I was um, uncertain whether I wanted to just be a purely docu- a pure documentary filmmaker. And this opportunity presented itself to me to um, join the BBC Drama Directors Course at very short notice, and I didn't quite know what I was signing up for. And it was for a multi, you know, multi-camera directing, which was not something I'd ever thought about. Um, and it was a kind of a seedbed for for EastEnders. So you, you did your training effectively on the EastEnders. Well, and yeah, so I did about six ender, uh, six. Um, episodes of EastEnders and, and learned that in that in that particular genre the, the time pressures are even more monstrous than in documentaries. <laughs> yeah. and I, no, 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 this is not for me. But yeah, no, I learned a lot and, and I enjoyed it. Oh, that's good. Um yeah, little something that we spotted on your on your C V that we thought, oh that's a little that's a little different yeah, from no, everything a, else yeah, he's been an, doing. An anomaly and I don't often uh, talk about it. But thank you for asking. <laughs> I mean it does seem a bit of a contrast to say I mean, because I also in the same little deep dive there was say like being cinematographer on Africa Express and it's that does seem like a vastly different job. But it is it <laughs> was that was that not confusing, but was that a tricky thing to handle at the time? 
it was, you know, as a freelancer, you don't, you're not always the master of your own destiny, you know, you, and, and so you have to try things. I think, you know, some of the best opportunities in, in my career have come from taking a bit of a punt uh, yeah. in terms of, you know, and I mean, I've, I've, I've just, I've just, uh, last year, I actually shot a movie. Now, I never imagined that opportunity would come to me and people may scratch their head and say, what's he doing? But um, uh, I've always found that, you know, you, you've got to be quite flexible and you've got to, um, and, and sometimes taking uh, a punt on something that you're not sure about. Um, by and large, it's, it's, I've never lost anything and, and more often I've gained things. So the, 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 the uh, BBC drama director's course in East End is, is among those experiences. <laughs> And uh, the just the project that you said you shot last year was that as a cinematographer, director, or producer? Uh, as a cinematographer, I was oh, invited okay. to to to, yeah. to shoot a movie. Yeah, was that nice to come on board a project and not have to produce it? <laughs> I had more fun than is than is than I could have ever imagined. It was for a dear friend of mine, um, a film called A Fistful of Karma. And it, we were all, had all just emerged from uh, lockdown, and thirty-five people gathered at this most uh, this sensationally beautiful Italian farmhouse location. It was all shot on one location, and over three weeks we 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 made a mockumentary, which is why oh. I think he asked me to film it. It's perfect. That sounds like an excellent way to um, come out of COVID lockdown. That's for sure. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I mean that that definitely seems to have been a favorite kind of project for people I think you know trying to do things on a one location and give yourself new challenges we've spoken to a few people who've done some really great work coming out of lockdown by basically giving themselves this challenge of like right we can do this so let's try that in terms of that did you find that the that limitation made you more creative Yes, I mean, of that particular experience um, was unexpected. Uh, uh, um, it's a comedy film, and I'm not known for um, my association with that genre. But I was, as I say, I was a cinematographer. And, uh, yeah, there's something very, um, we, we, you know, we created a bubble. Um, and it was kind of uh, emotionally and socially, it was, a, it was a very kind of rewarding experience. And creatively having the limitations of a single location. I mean, it's quite a big place with lots of different angles in the, in the Italian mountains. Um, so, um, it was great to, to have it quite, uh, the whole thing to be very defined, uh, mm -hmm. both physically, uh, in terms of time. And, um, yeah, so it was a really fantastic experience. Moving into the 2000s on the documentary work, you obviously were saying you, that you moved into a longer format. Was that progression like a natural one? Did it just happen organically? Yeah, I think it's not. I mean, I, um, I had and, and continued to have a close association with some of the uh, great British broadcasters and the, and, and the people that commissioned documentaries. 
But I think uh, anybody who's done it for some time, you know, you, you have to, you obviously have to uh, um, adopt the discipline of addressing their their audiences and how their audiences are defined. It's sometimes open to interpretation, but it means you have to have to. There are limits in terms of how much you can take risks with the, with the grammar of a film, and that sometimes is a bit limiting. Um, I, I mentioned, you know, the you know typically the use of commentary or the reliance uh, on a um, an author or presenter or front person. And after a while, you know, you kind of think, well, okay, I've done that. Um, I'd, ra- I'd rather be somewhere where I can take more risks. And, and that's really why I was drawn to, to, to feature docs. Um, and I mean, the massive difference there really is what happens when you, when you complete a film. With television, um, you know, if you're lucky, you have a good publicist and, and, and people write some nice things about it, about, uh, the program before it, it's transmitted. You know, you're, You've got to have done something really exceptional um, if they're still talking about it uh, after lunch the following day. It's in the very ephemeral nature of television. Making feature docs is a wholly different experience because you're actually, you sort of go on the road with the film and you go and talk to audiences and you understand, you you establish a a relationship and um, across multiple screenings. Uh, And that's the experience i'm enjoying at the moment you know so we uh, uh, our film my name is happy is on the on the festival circuit but we also had a, a, a short limited run here in the uk so i've done 20 screenings something like that in, in you know, um, already this year and at least as many to go and most of the time you're actually up there in in front of the audience uh, they're asking you questions you're introducing them to, to some of the cast members um and people are responding and writing and uh, um, and appreciating the film in a wholly different context um, and a different way. So that's the massive difference for me between uh, making films for television and for the cinema. I mean, obviously, there's been a massive shift in the landscape of documentaries with like people like Amazon and Netflix coming in and there being a more receptive audience. Have you found that that's meant that you have more opportunity? and can actually get into stories into a much greater depth than you could before? I think audiences are much more tolerant or, or even hungry for longer-form documentaries, mm-hmm. and you see more and more um, films, even on television, being presented at a 90-minute length than you, we ever have before, which is great. I mean, it's, it's the difference between a, a long read in the newspaper or a, or a or a standard length news piece, you know, and, and I think people after the pandemic are prepared to invest a bit more time and thought into, in, in, into um, curated pieces, if you like. I think the streamers uh, have had, um, I'm ambivalent, to be quite frank. I mean, they've had, um, initially, they had a wonderful energizing impact on our industry and obviously with, you know, brought considerable amounts of funding uh, with with them, and that opened up the industry to a whole new uh, a new generation of filmmakers and presented filmmakers such as myself with new opportunities. Um, I think the, the, the streamers, though, um, they're they're greedy. They kind of want all territories, and they they kind of own your project, lock, stock, and barrel. So the experience I just described of going to festivals and 
um, doing an interview like this, quite frankly, would never happen if I'd have, uh, if I'd have made a film for the streamer because they would control the, whether it appeared at festivals, which press, if any, what awards it might be submitted to, uh, and when it goes out. And, and you know, no idea how many people see it with the streamers. So you don't, you've got no measure as to how really, really as to how successful, um, the film has been or, and how responsive audiences have been. So yeah, I'm ambivalent about that, about the streamers, but they presented us with some wonderful opportunities. I did want to briefly, uh, ask you about the, your Warren Zevon documentary about his last album was that a passion project or did you become involved as they knew you could handle it sensitively that the dear old friend of mine who worked for um vh1 alongside mtv uh um who'd been based in london for some time called me out of the blue after i just lost a project and wasn't quite sure what i was going to do and um I heard of Warren Zevon largely because uh, Werewolves of London had been such a massive sort of disco hit in, in the 70s here, but I, I knew a little more about him. But from the moment I first met, so I flew, flew at, you know, I, I, I got the call the next day I was on a flight to LA and, and the following day I met Warren. And from the moment I met, met him, I thought he was the most extraordinary character I'd ever had the uh, honor and opportunity to 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 work with and we became very close i mean at the time he'd just been di- diagnosed with mesophilioma uh which is a very degenerative form of, of lung cancer which is pretty pretty fatal so he'd been given three months to live and, and wanted to make a swan song album and i had no idea how dearly loved he was within sort of hollywood Hollywood's music, musical uh, royalty. So before we knew it as the film charts, you know, we, we had um, and just the most amazing musicians joining him in the studio from uh, uh, Bruce Springsteen to Tom Petty, the Eagles. I could go, I can't remember the cast list. It was pretty extraordinary. And he had some um, exceptional friends, some heroes of mine, having studied American literature. He introduced me to Hunter S. Thompson. Oh my goodness. That's, which is a night I will never forget. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, yeah, the Warren Zebra film was, a, has a, a, was a, a truly remarkable experience for me and a real privilege. Uh, and I became very, very fond of him. Um, and he, he lived much longer than anybody expected. Uh, he, he lived for about seven months, I think, after the diagnosis. He saw the film and gave it his blessing. And um, oh, wow. yeah, it's a very uh, um, special project for me. Shadows are falling and I'm running out of breath. Diving into uh, your current project, uh, the one you're touring right now, My Name is Happy. Um, I noticed in your work in 2005, you covered similar issues of femicide in Kurdish Turkey in the piece The Second Wife. Um, was this a topic that you wanted to re-explore or how did you come to um, get involved with the story of My Name is Happy? In 2005, I was assigned by the BBC to make a film about polygamy and they were short films for a series called World Weddings. And I suppose going in, I was a little naive and thought this would be quite a light piece. 
But it seems then that polygamy is just one aspect of uh, a society that was clinging to the past and to these patriarchal practices that included honor killings, underage marriages, forced marriages, dowry payments, some of which overlap with polygamy. And uh, I was truly shocked, actually, by, by the way women were treated and just how anachronistic this society was and how the, the levels of power and control and violence that men were exerting over women. And I couldn't really do justice to it in half an hour. Um, so in 2015, when I uh, read about Mutlu's shooting, it was very rare that a story like that was reported in the English language. Mm -hmm. And frankly, the only reason it was is because Mutlu had been um, the finalist on this talent show, the equivalent of Turkey's Got Talent. So I waited about a year until Mutlu was, uh, had returned home from hospital before we, uh, with, with the same producer I worked on the polygamy film, a wonderful guy called Mahmoud Kaya, and, and he approached the family on my behalf and said, would they be interested? And they were interested, but I could tell immediately that it was too early in Mutlu's uh, rehabilitation. She was still physically, uh, and I'm sure emotionally, still recovering. Um, so we waited. We were patient mm -hmm. um, until 2020. And in summer of 2020, there was a series of truly shocking femicides uh, of young women in Turkey uh, to the extent that the women of Turkey comes almost spontaneously took to the streets in protest that they wanted to be, they wanted more protection. So it was at that point I got back in touch with Mutlu and her family and learned about the really shocking death of her sister Dilek, mm -hmm. also at the hands of a man, also in the circumstances where, um, you know, he had tried to forcibly marry her and I realized with these two sisters in the same family, this was um, a story that needed telling. And by then, I think Mablu had sufficiently recovered and was at that point very um, angry and passionate about finding justice for her sister. Um, I still felt we had the ingredients and the timing was right to, to pitch the story and then to start making it. There are a number of threads in the film that obviously you don't have time to cover. Did you find that it was tricky to try and keep focus on her central story rather than trying to cover all of this stuff? Because obviously it, to me, it feels like there are maybe two or three more films in there. To, mm -hmm. There's so many issues that need addressing. Yeah. I guess if I've learned anything uh, as a fi in making feature docs and over, over a, perhaps what might one might describe as a story career, it, it's often the decision about what you exclude from a film that's as important or sometimes more important than what, than what you include. There was uh, various guiding principles we had with My Name is Happy. I think as a filmmaker, if you, 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 know, you, you, you can never forget your audience. And, uh, and younger filmmakers come to me and I say, who is this, what audience is this film for? And it sounds an obvious question, but you have to think deeply about it, I think, when you're, when you're making a film like this. 
We badly, urgently want our audience for this film to be in Turkey. Yes. So that means that we had to make some very conscious decisions about what to exclude to be able to show the film in Turkey. To show a film in Turkey, you have to have a license that has to be passed by the equivalent of a censor. And as I sit here today, I still don't quite know where we stand. But had we included more context about uh, perhaps political context Mm -hmm. about um, or context about the Turkish judiciary and the way that they treat people in the courts, and and had we gone down a more journalistic route, I, I don't believe we would, have, would stand a chance of having this film shown in Turkey. Wow. And uh, I must include uh, my co-director here, Aisha Toprak, who really mm-hmm. was the person who should take complete credit for the level of, of, of trust um, that we together achieved with, with the family. She got a remarkably sort of intimate and... Um, revealing interviews from from the family, and and that's entirely to her credit. And with, with when when I joined forces with Aisha as co-director, she also uh, introduced uh, me to an almost entirely female Turkish crew, mm-hmm. which was also made a massive difference to the relationships that we were able to create with the family. But in talking to Aisha, we were re- we we kind of wanted our vision for the film to to sort of combine the the epic and the intimate and the epic we knew we had because there were these vast sort of um, uh, uh, l- landscapes that seemed to go on forever and we knew that the scenes of the film of of, of death and violence and conflict and hope and, and survival were pretty epic but the intimacy we knew we had to achieve by um, through through the relationship of trust so we, among the things we excluded in the film, we, we wanted to make it a little bit of a precinct film and to sort of really just concentrate on the family members, mm-hmm. which is why you, you don't really, you know, there aren't any characters that we could have included, you know, lawyers or representatives of the patriarchy, you know, uh, um, outside the family. We deliberately excluded those voices because we wanted this to be a very intimate portrait Mm-hmm. of a survivor, not a, not a victim, a survivor. And that was also a guiding principle for us. Um, and so we decided to limit ourselves to the family. You spoke earlier about creating a cast for your projects. And mm-hmm. at the very beginning of the film, um, I know it mentions that there's eight children, right? Um, so it's quite a large family uh, initially. Did you have a hard time narrowing down which family members to focus on or was it quite obvious who who to shed a bit of light on because obviously you know we get to know the mother and the father and uh a couple of the siblings uh, yeah it, it took us um some time to work out who was who i mean they're an extraordinarily open um welcoming family um, and their kind of front door is is you know is open so there's i mean it's a large extended family so it took us a while to work out who was who, who actually <laughs> yeah. lived there who was visiting who was staying <laughs> and um you know lots of cousins and you know there are um there are the parents and there are 
there are eight children yeah. um six sisters well there were six sisters uh, yes. um and in the film we kind of limited ourselves just because you can tell by the ways we're just for people who lived lived within in that apartment mm-hmm. and um it's i think a little unusual as a family unit certainly in turkey uh because this family is very definitely a matriarchy uh, the, the the female characters are um are, are so strong and strong will um and accordingly to answer your question you know it it took us a, a long time to kind of work out the father's role in this mm-hmm. and, and 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 to 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 get him to to open up and i think um you know he would say uh, that i mean he describes himself as a broken man which is a harsh thing to say but i mean i think the emotional impact and um of having two daughters um who have suffered these appalling fates um and the burden of guilt and shame that he carries um means that he you know he has he struggles with coming to terms with that mm-hmm. and so he's an absent character he was very rarely in the apartment he would go out pretty much every day to the to the tea shop to sit with his mates and talk he's kind of retired i think forcibly retired and so there are some health issues as well and yeah it took us a long time to work him out there's there there's he's barely acknowledged by in the in the family he sort of drifts around like a ghost in the background sometimes but um gradually we got to know and and, and um and sort of earn his trust um and he's a fascinating character i think yeah there was definitely a vulnerability that he shows and it was a quite a remarkable amount of openness that he was willing to share i mean as you say he says he's a broken man everything it was very surprising that he was saying some of those things and that relationship between him and mutlu was one of the surprising things is that one of the areas that you had to try and exclude because there's sort of a difficulty between her and him in terms of obviously he's male and represents a sort of negative aspect of Turkish society, even though it's not him directly, you know what I mean? She recognises he's her father and she loves him, but there's still this difficulty. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mutlu herself says, says in the film, I mean, they, they, they're really in the same room together. Yeah. You know, um, but, uh, and, you, you know, so uh, I didn't really have the opportunity to observe the relationship. I think there's still a lot of, a lot of love there, but, you know, um, Songo, uh, still has kind of un- unresolved issues because um, in that part of the world uh, and in that family, there are there are no marriages that are not ordained by the by the, uh, the father. I mean, you know, uh, um, they're, they're nearly all arranged marriages, and Songul had, a, by her accounts, a pretty disastrous arranged marriage. Marriage, so she has a sort of residual. Bitterness about that, um, and part of that's directed towards her father. I, I, I think her mother's complicit in this as well. You know, all, all marriages are arranged by parents; they're all brokered, and you know, dowries agreed. Um, that, that is their cultural norm, and um, it's, you know, um, it obviously has different impacts on different families and couples. And um, but yeah, Mutlu is a relation. Uh, there's a deep fondness between Mutlu and, and her father, but um, her father is still obviously struggling with the with the past. What was the duration of filming 
um, with the family and spending time with them to build up that connection and to get the footage that then led to the final film. So, um, I'm not very good on the dates. They're all a bit of a blur, to be honest with you. <laughs> we spent several weeks um, just getting to know the family before we um, before we produced a camera. I mean, we needed, firstly, we were obviously trying to build up a relationship of trust and get to know them and get to know their stories. But we also wanted to understand independently what impact we um, the the process of filming might have on them, mm-hmm. and what impact the film's release might have on them, and that's really uh, something I feel very strongly about mm-hmm. in these in these relationships is exercising a, a duty of care that that we can do everything we can to anticipate any negative impact um, and continue to do so. The film, you know, we hope the film will be released in October in in Turkey. And we hope it'll be shown in in Mertlou's local community. Um, so, but we'll be, you know, taking some very careful advice, and um, that uh, we'll we'll look after them. Mm-hmm. But sorry to answer your question. We so we spent several weeks um, just t- talking to them before we produced a camera, and then the film was actually shot over four trips through twenty twenty one to twenty two. Um, through the sort of heat of the uh, pandemic, which was tricky, you know. Um, And it's tricky also because um, to make any film in Turkey, uh, uh, for me as a foreign filmmaker, I I needed a a permission. And I never asked for that permission uh, because I wasn't prepared for the answer no. Um, So I was effectively working there... um, uh, I don't want to say undercover, but we we just had to be very careful under that, the that, radar. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, that we remained under the ra- under the radar and in in an area that is hev- heavily uh, militarized and policed. It's um, you know, Diyarbakir is the um, is regarded as the center of, of of the PKK separatist movement. It has a history of terrorist. Uh, activities and you know to travel from our hotel to Mutnu's home involved going through I think about six roadblocks uh, which sometimes with vehicle checks and um, yeah we had to be a little cautious and that's again why we wanted to be very careful that there was no negative impact for Mutnu and her family. So the film now is, as you say, in its festival journey. Um, how's that experience been? I mean, obviously for yourself, it's that's something you're a little bit more used to. But for Mutlu and her family and being able to share her story internationally um, and, and kind of being there with them on that journey, how's that experience been? Well, the film had its international premiere at Edfer in Amsterdam in November last year. Mm-hmm. And since then, um, I'm guessing we've, uh, the film's been at about eight festivals and we've been honoured more recently with a, with a couple of awards. Um, 
uh, most recently at the Krakow Film Festival, we won the Golden Horn, the main documentary prize, which I'm delighted to say automatically qualifies us for Oscar consideration, which was a bonus that I, I <laughs> hadn't realized um, two weeks ago when I went to Krakow to, to pick up the award. So we're very gratified mm. and encouraged, I guess, by the response. And we always designed this journey to be with with Mutlu, and we're mm -hmm. including her as much as we can. The reality is that the injury she suffered in 2015, she still lives with on a daily basis. Right. So we've invited her uh, to join us, at, you know, for the premiere in 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 Amsterdam, the London premiere, which was about a month ago, and various other festivals. And sadly, she hasn't been able to join us physically. She she has a medical condition that's a direct result of her injuries that needed um, treatment, a spinal condition, and the doctors have advised her not to fly. So she's been joining us virtually. Yeah. For us, it's, it's crucial that this, you know, the, the, the journey the film makes is, is hand in hand with her. And we have, um, we've won, we won a, a, a grant to enable what was called an impact campaign. Um, which is a sort of parallel journey to the film's commercial release. It's to, to, to actually fund the film making a difference. So we have plans to show it, um, to the, in front of United Nations bodies, EU bodies, WHO. And uh, we are talking to numerous women's rights organizations about holding screenings and joining forums with them. Uh, that's in Europe. And then we have a whole impact campaign for Turkey plans after our release there in, in the autumn, where we take it into communities. And in London, I'm, you know, having a short cinema run here where, you know, as of next week, we're going into school. We're taking the film to schools. We're taking it to universities. We're take, taking it anywhere where we can actually create a debate mm -hmm. to heighten awareness because um, I'm under no illusions and nor should anybody be that. Femicide and domestic violence is not a Turkish problem. It's a universal problem. And so what I hope people take away from the film is that these are things that I should need talking about. That's, um, that's amazing that alongside your festival journey that you can do that. Mm. It's so, so important. Yeah, it's exciting to have a film. It's a rare experience for me, and, and I think it's relatively... Um, recent that filmmakers are now being introduced to a new a, a breed of impact producers mm -hmm. and we all as filmmakers dream of making films that make a difference and impact producers can actually make that a reality and that's very exciting wow so is this i mean you've done a lot of projects that you know are raising issues and shedding lights on on certain issues um but do you feel like is this the first chance you've had to have this kind of exposure of, of impact? Um, with impact, yeah, this is the most ambitious impact campaign I, I've ever been part of. I've done it in smaller ways with individual films um, in, in the past, but not, with, without this level of backing and without, um, you know, some very sophisticated um, professionals. Mm -hmm. who are who are advising us we're in partnership with a group called think film impact who um handled the impact campaign for navalny which obviously won 
the BAFTA and the Oscar last year. Yeah. So um, we're just beginning a journey with them, really, where they can open doors that we 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 wouldn't even be a, be able to knock on, you know, at, at a quite senior governmental level mm-hmm. and at lobbying level. One one of our great ambitions, I suppose, without getting too detailed or technical, in 2021 while we were filming, Turkey withdrew from something called the Istanbul Convention, an international treaty signed in 2012 by 26 countries. And it's the only piece of international legislation, this side of the Atlantic, that tries to enshrine in law that women must be protected from men, that gives, you know, that puts women's rights and, and, and um, front and center. And it's a really important piece of legislation. And in 2021, Turkey is the only country to withdraw. And this was um, in deference um, to some of the voices that recently were heard in Erdogan's election, who, which are, are fairly right wing and fairly conservative, who both claim, you know, who claimed that the Istanbul Convention was undermining family values, quote unquote, and oh. promoting LGBT values, which was the rationale for Turkey withdrawing. Our avowed intent with this film is to get them to reconsider that decision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And obviously, too, um, that, that, that's many people say that's wildly overambitious. But with the right sort of help, we can at least put it on the agenda. And that's why we'll go back to Geneva and make that point to the UN and to the EU. And we hope to have a special audience with the special rapporteur for domestic violence at the UN. And so, yeah, we, 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 um, we want the film very much to be a tool for change. So it sounds like even though the film is finished and now doing the festival circuit, um, it's far from being over for you <laughs> in terms of your involvement. This is true. Yeah. This is true. I mean, we finished the film last August. Yeah. But I've pretty still pretty much been working on it to the exclusion of all else since. And that'll be the case certainly till the end of this year. Mm-hmm. So we've been, um, we've, uh, part of our impact campaign is only with the film screening at various human rights festivals and human rights film festivals. Mm-hmm. So we have about eight different events from uh, Kosovo to um, Geneva. But we go back to Geneva, um, Berlin. Uh, the, these are human rights events and, and film festivals combined. So we'll be screening the film there. And, um, yeah, really doing what we can to um, engage people with it, to spread you know, the word of mouth and, and hopefully change hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. On a connected sort of thing, in an unusual way, Mutlu has got this TikTok community that's behind her. How has that impacted your, basically, I guess, it is the word of mouth, that's the thing. Is that a different audience that you wouldn't normally get to attract? Yeah, well, we've we've been really encouraged by um, the younger demographic who've seen the film to date in cinemas. We then get some very different response uh, um, from a, a, a nineteen or twenty-year-old who the, the few who've seen the film in the cinema, and I think they completely engage with um, Mutlu. I mean, she, I think she's very eloquent. She can be very funny. She she's a really charismatic character, and in that we were blessed. Um, 
But her window on the world and how she communicates is, is through TikTok. And at last count, I think she had 1.8 million followers. And we sincerely hope that that will go up considerably when, when, uh, when the film is fully, fully released. Um, for her, it's, um, it's how she communicates and she, um, she has friends all over the world, even though she doesn't speak any other language. Well, she speaks Turkish and Kurdish, but she, you know, she can still communicate with them. And for her, that's vitally important. Um, we, we're trying to engage with that community. Um, and so we've been encouraging to post, uh, news about the film online. But we're kind of holding back until the film is released in Turkey, because I think that's when she'll get most excited about it, and when you know we're very confident, we're hopeful that that she'll make the Turkish premiere, and so we'll launch, if you like, an impact campaign and an online campaign um, in 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 the autumn. Fantastic. Yeah, that sounds it sounds very uh, like you still have lots to come. And we've still got a lot of road to travel, yeah. this is for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I, I, my greatest hope is that, you know, Rodley can be as involved as she wants to be and is capable of being. But I hope it's, you know, um, uh, we're, we're doing our best. I, I, I was just uh, uh, this morning, you know, filling out a visa application for her to come to, to Berlin. And, you know, we're, 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 we're doing what we can to make that happen. Um, mm-hmm. Song, Songul, her sister, came to London for the premiere. Uh, a few weeks ago, and um, it was fantastic. I mean, she'd never been to London, and I gave her the the guided tour. We went on the <laughs> coronation. We went on the coronation route. Fortunately, the flags were still out. I told them it was purely for Songol, but um, <laughs> 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 I she, you know, and it's the kind of journey on a mm. personal level. We became very close to them. We we feel very fondly about them, and we want to express that in any way we can think of, really, because. Yeah. Uh, we owe them. We wouldn't have a film without them. And, mm-hmm. you know, we are, I mean, the other thing I wanted to mention is that, you know, our impact campaign has a, a um, has a really important component. And um, I, I'd like to share with you a, a QR code or a, a link uh, where we have set up a, a site where the, um, anybody who engages with the film, who've seen the film, can actually engage with Mutlu directly and support her directly because um, a really important part of our impact campaign is to raise funds for her care and therapy, which she needs far more of than she's getting and can afford at the moment. So we have a donation site we're, 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 and um, we're inviting anybody who's engaged with the film and by the film to, to go there and contribute what they can. No, definitely please do share that with us and we can share that as well. Um, with our listeners, absolutely. Please, I, I'd be most grateful if you could just check it out. And it, it allows you to go, you know, it sort of obviously has Mutlu's social media links there. You can talk to her directly and she'll be online. She's online pretty much every night. <laughs> yeah. I've let her, you know, she goes on about 11 o'clock her time and I think she's on for three or four hours and chattering away, um, playing, the, <laughs> uh, playing the sounds she likes. Occasionally, Showing, sharing the fashion she she adores, and she's um she's still uh, a very dynamic, outgoing, and extraordinary young woman, mm-hmm. and um, get to know her better. She's she's worth it. I mean, definitely, they're such dynamic characters. I can foresee 
returning to this story at some point, hopefully when the film has made some great changes. I, I hope so. I mean, I really hope that it's um, helped Mutlu re-engage with her musical ambitions as well. Absolutely. The film tells the story in part of her, her, her journey to, re- to recover her singing voice. And I don't want to give too much away, you know, for people who haven't seen it. But, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's an interesting uh, part of the narrative. Um, but I'm really hoping that, um, well, I, I know she will continue writing and continue creating music. Uh, um, and that's hard for her, you know, her, 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 um, her body's been terribly damaged by this experience and that's affected her voice. I think she'd be the first to admit. But she still has this sort of well of creativity in her that she's desperate to express. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, any co- musical collaborators out there who want to, you know, who are, especially anybody who's into Turkish trap, which I have to say, Turkish trap was a new musical genre for me personally. But we're, uh, <laughs> that's what Mutlu loves, and that's how she wants to express herself. So we, we, we hope we can do everything we can to encourage her. Well, on that note, um, we usually at the end of our interviews, we like to ask what you're working on next, but um, it sounds like you're still kind of in the thick of it with this project. Uh, is there any sort of, well, you, we've shared lots of information about um, how to connect with Mutlu and, and upcoming um, festivals and, and campaigns. Uh, is there anything, any last uh, last thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? The film week will be shown uh, in the UK on Channel 4 um, in October. So I'd love it if as many people as possible tune in. Um, but we can share details about that. I don't have a precise date, otherwise I'd, I'd share it now. Uh, I'd love as many people as possible to to not only watch the film, but to respond to it criticize it uh, uh you know be part of the conversation because it's a conversation that's not just about turkey it's a com- it's a conversation about how we uh, about how men and women interact about power and control and things that are part of our all our lives and um so i like to think the film offers some unusual insights um and so yeah be part of the conversation please We'd appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's always the case quite often that it's lack of dialogue that prevents things from actually changing. And so, yeah, if anyone wants to talk about it, whatever their opinion is, yeah, we should definitely encourage that. So, yeah, we shall share all the links and all the the QR codes and everything else. So anyone listening right now, you can check our socials and there will be the link and the QR code. Um, And, yeah, be part of that conversation and actually... uh, be a part of a, a force for good. Exactly. Really lovely talking to you guys. And thank you for giving us a moment and talking about the film. It means a lot. Oh, our pleasure. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.